How did a classical French chef cook chicken? Has much changed in 100 years? Well, chickens still seem universally beloved. They are versatile, too. Let's find out. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 265, Food and Freedom, Once a Week for Life. Hello folks, Dan Reed here. I've trained with two certified master chefs. I've driven a stove for years, and I taught classical French cooking as a chef instructor at a culinary school. What does Escoffier, the master of French cuisine, know that we can use today? Stick around as we start the poultry part of Escoffier's Le Guide Culinaire, easy for me to say. The Escoffier series continues with Chapter 8, Poultry. Now, some of the stuff in poultry is covered in the braising section. We're not going to talk about braising here or poiling, which still remains a mildly challenging cooking method, but my goodness, does it make a good bird. Poultry is an impressively long chapter, which means mostly there's lots of recipes for the various kinds of birds he is going to talk about. Nearly all of those recipes are for chicken, duck, turkey, and pigeon. Yes, I know pigeon isn't something we think about too much nowadays. Uh, Excluded in Chapter 8 are pheasant, partridge, and quail. They will come up in the game section. I don't know if farmed game was a thing in France a hundred years ago. It certainly is a thing here now, today. Although if you go outside anywhere in my neck of the woods, you find, I don't know what a bunch of quail together is called, but there's, they're everywhere. There's one chief issue between Escoffier's writing when he wrote this, and us today, and that is how much bigger the chickens have been made to be. Yes, they have been bred to be bigger. That's a curious topic, and it might be another show. Also, it seems the selection of kinds of birds has been diminished to only a few. Now, Just from my memory, it seems the choice of birds at my grocery store is a choice of two. Take it or leave it. Gone from, or at least gone from where I shop, are the choices of broiler or fryer or roaster or young chicken. I'm not sure if I'm remembering right or just not paying attention in the store, or if in fact that actually is the case. I'm going to avoid using his term for chickens since they don't really seem to fit what we see in the store and focus just on large or small. Now, even that's relative. What is certain is the older the bird is and weight is a pretty good way to determine age, the tougher the meat will be on the older the birds, especially if it is cooked poorly. 
Now, large chicken breasts will tend toward tougher meat if they're grilled on high heat. Now, I know someone has done high heat grilled chicken and been perfectly happy with the results. It's not impossible, but younger, smaller birds are better suited to high heat cooking. Lower the grill heat for larger birds and longer cooking can produce good results. And by the way, that's the thing we learned about for roasts also. The smaller the piece of meat, the higher the heat to start. And in some cases, also to finish. Escoffier does not suggest braising large chickens. Now, that's kind of interesting. The most famous braised chicken might be Cocovan, which is not in his book. It is rooster marinated in red wine. And usually it's going to, now the marinade doesn't have to have the vegetables, but it is not uncommon to put carrots, celery, onions, fennel, parsnip, leeks into the marinade, button mushrooms, uh, and then braise the rooster with all of the, the juice and the veggies. <laughs> now, you you don't need to go poach your neighbors. That's funny. It's a joke. You don't need to go kidnap your neighbor's uh, rooster to make coca van. You can use a big bird. You can use a small bird. But boy, howdy, it's a fine tasting dish. So it would be classic French cuisine, that classical French cuisine. And pretty much any grandma in France with the chicken coop makes cocovan. There's a lot of basting of birds in Le Guide Culinaire. I'm not certain I'm on board with that practice. Anecdotally, my grandma basted her turkey, and it was famous for being as dry as sand and just about as palatable. Those two things may not be related, but they kind of go together, at least in my memory of what happens. Part of what doesn't make sense to me is, first, you have a skin of fat over the meat, and the fat's going to repel any liquid you based onto it. The second problem is that by the nature of what's happening with the application of heat Liquid just doesn't seem too eager to get in since the process of cooking is pushing liquid out. So, anyway, it, it certainly is a time honored tradition, even if it doesn't seem to produce a whole much, whole, whole bunch of anything. Service of chicken in a classical French dining room meant that the maitre d' would serve the chicken. Leg quarters were held. Uh, in the kitchen for other uses. Now, they may not have been cooked at all. They may have been cooked and something else done with them. But when Scoffier is writing, in some cases, about uh, serving the chicken, you have to read each recipe is going to, going to be plain about what's happening. Much of the time, it's only the chicken breast. Now, what makes... French service particularly challenging, and it's in, in reading through this, it's just it, it's hard to not feel stress as as the cook on the line. So the the cook is going to debone the cooked bird, 
hold it warm, probably in some stock near the stove while he finishes his little his little tasks. So the chicken breast is completely deboned, uh, and the skin is not damaged any more than necessary to cut through the sternum to remove the meat. Then some kind of mixture could be um, uh, well. It, it would have been like a like a um, puree, puree. He doesn't call it pureed spaghetti, but he, uh, like a mash of spaghetti. It could have been mashed potatoes. It could have been risotto. Um, any of those things is going to be garnished, and you make a little dome on the serving platter, and then put the chicken breasts together on top of that, so it looks like the the whole chicken cavity is assembled. And the maitre d is going to maybe carve that in the dining room. Um, it, it gets it gets complicated fast. We don't really need to do those things at home. You can if you want to. the The chief problem, which isn't something addressed by Escoffier, uh, his concern is for service and for ease of service and for the customer, the guest, to have the best dining experience. Now, that's not really going to happen necessarily with leg quarters. Um, the big problem with roasting a whole chicken is it's not all going to be done at the same time. The breasts and leg quarters don't cook the same rate. So to fully cook the thighs is to overcook the breast, and now we're back to grandma's sandbox. The easiest way to solve this problem is to split. Um, so if you can envision a whole chicken sitting on your cutting board, and let's say its legs are on your right hand and the neck is on the left hand, between the legs and the abdominal cavity, there is a way to separate that, that, that top from bottom. Basically, you're going you know, to break the back. Now, there's a way to remove, you can either be fancy or unfancy. You can leave the leg quarters attached to the backbone. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also a way to um, use your knife to go around the backbone and uh, through the hip socket and take the leg off and leave that backbone. Um, if you wanted to, if you are, if you, my mom used to use um, chicken shears. She didn't know how to cut a chicken with a knife, but she could cut it up with chicken uh, sh um, scissors, shears. You can cut the backbone out of the breast cavity, which will help it stand up a little bit and help it roast and keeps it nice, nice and pretty. Um, one now, I made a, a YouTube, I think it was YouTube, Facebook post, maybe a year ago. When you're going to roast a whole chicken breast, it's really helpful. It's, it's If you've never done it, it, it can feel tedious and kind of intimidating to remove the, wish, the wishbone from the raw chicken. Now, that's going to make carving substantially easier. It's like, oh, my goodness. It's just, it makes a huge difference. We don't do that for Thanksgiving because we want, you know, wishbone and whatever. Um, actually, I do do that at Thanksgiving, <laughs> but because carving gets in the way, makes a big it makes a big difference in how well, how easily you can carve your chicken breast or turkey breast or duck or goose or whatever you got. Perhaps the best cut, 
according to most folks, is the chicken breast. The bone-in skin-on has the most flavor. Now, costs do matter, and a whole chicken is generally going to be the cheapest per pound over anything in this process. The more work done to the meat, the more expense there is. So boneless, skinless chicken breasts are going to cost more per pound than bone-in skin on chicken breasts. But that kind of makes sense. And even doesn't, I mean, it's all expensive these days, but uh, buying that whole bird will, and it has two, it has two things. One, if you are a family of five or six, one bird might feed five or six, depending on your sides, but you only get two chicken breasts. Uh, whereas you buy a styrofoam tray, you can get as many as, as there are on the tray. But the other thing that comes with that chicken is you get the bones for stock. So I made a big deal, or at least something of a deal, about bone-in, skin-on chicken breast. Well, here's the twist. For the portion Escafe calls the filet and supreme, which some some crooks are going to balk at this, and it gets a little bit confusing. For him, filet and supreme is the same thing, and that is that is the breast meat only, no winglet. Now that's his phrase, but it's really fun to say, and no skin. Now the breast filet can be cut into thinner portions by slicing through the breast meat horizontally. Now this is something I think this is the big difference between our chickens and the Scoffia's chickens. Uh, I. I get some <laughs> fat mama chicken breasts, and they're huge. That might be an inch and a half thick at the at the top where the wing is, and this this is massive. And so take take your chicken breast if if you're boning your chicken, if you're buying a tray of skinless, boneless, that's fine. Whatever you have, there's a couple of ways to make thinner pieces of chicken, and we're gonna get into why that's going to make a difference. Either place the chicken, so the smooth side, what would be the skin side goes up, so the, the part that was on the bone goes on the cutting board. And if I, if I do it, the, the shoulder side, which is the really thick side, is to my right. And I take a, a, my knife and just slice, like cut the equator. Cut through it horizontally to make two pieces. Uh, you can also, if it's really big, or if you prefer a smaller piece, um, uh, so that half of a chicken breast is going to make a really big footprint in the pan. It's going to have a, a big lot of surface area. If you take that same chicken breast and hold your knife at, say, a 30-degree angle or so, and cut three or four or five, the more pieces you get, the thinner the pieces are going to be. The advantage of this is you have a smaller surface area, so more can fit in the pan. The advantage also is when we're going to get into sauteing, we want something that we can manage that's going to cook uniformly, and that big chicken breast that tapers down to very, very thin will not be a uniform cook. So we have our 
boneless, skinless piece of chicken filet. So it's seasoned, salt and pepper, floured, probably wheat flour. It could be rice flour. It could be a wide variety of gluten-free flours if that's something that you need. And then it is browned in clarified butter in a very hot pan. Now, very hot, medium-high, low heat, those are kind of ambiguous terms. A very hot pan with clarified butter is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 410 or 20 degrees. You're going to visually assess a hot pan because there's going to be just the smallest amount of smoke coming up from that pan. That's the time to put the food in the pan. The purpose of speed, so the purpose of thin meat, is to cook the meat in the pan on the stove, turning the meat once. Meat that is too thick and cannot cook through quickly risks burning the outside before the inside is cooked. Also, taking too long to cook and drying out the surface, which makes the middle may be still undone, or the whole thing is toughened because it took too long. And a, a thinner slice is going to cook more uniformly and more, and more rapidly, which is the thing we're looking for, especially for a pan saute. Now, we're going to, get, we're going to, we're going to move on from this in a second. Now, Scott Fee mentions that such a filet should be served immediately. Well, here's the catch. The pan has all that lovely glaze, which should be part of the sauce. What to do? Play, I, so the cooked word is hold the chicken. Well, you can think of Jack Nicholson in five easy pieces, or at least wonder where, in what, what hand do I hold it? Put the chicken to the side, probably someplace near the stove, someplace warm, but not on a burner. While you are deglazing the pan, either the choice of things to deglaze with is limited to a few, but could be water, could be stock, could be Marcella, Madeira, white wine, red wine, brandy, Calvados, if you're making an apple-flavored or apple pieces sauce, um, Pear William, if you're making pear, so the the thing to deglaze is going to have some relevance to the finished sauce. And then once the deglaze is there, and you maybe need to use a spoon to sort of work up those caramely bits, the liquid is going to loosen them up. Add if you've got some kind of a half-made sauce, it will finish in the pan. Add that to the pan, or add some chicken stock to the pan. Let that reduce and put a small knob of butter in there. Swirl the pan, or if you aren't very comfortable swirling the pan, use a whisk to emulsify that butter into that deglazed liquid with stock for the sauce. Now you can either put the meat back in the sauce for a moment or two to reheat the chicken, or put it on the plate, sauce on top, there's a couple ways to do it. Scoffee would put the meat in the pan and then put that all on the, the either the toast points or whatever the thing is that was made by the cook to send out to the dining room for the maitre to then serve the guests. So 
the, the main reason I like doing that is, well, one, it gives you time to make the sauce, and two, even chicken is going to benefit from rusting just because of what we now know about how protein cooks and what happens as protein rusts. Now, there is one recipe from the book that I wanted to read, and it's 3159. And so this is called Supreme Duvalai, Maryland. Now, we've, we've covered how <laughs> he's, he's brief. Season the Supremes, flour, egg, and breadcrumb, and shallow fry them in clarified butter. Arrange on a dish, each placed on rashers of grilled bacon, surrounded with small fried galettes of maize flour and fried slices of banana. Served creamed horseradish sauce separately. Now, you may be thinking that fried slices of banana sounds weird, but it's not uncommon in a Thai restaurant. But Maryland isn't a Thai restaurant. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a Scafier's fried chicken what it is and he's got a version of it actually as fried chicken a couple a couple more recipes in the horseradish sauce actually sounds good i think that one is hot but um pretty tasty i'm going to move to and end with sautés for the sauté recipes the chicken is deboned from the back keeping the breast meat intact now this is kind of hard to visualize, and most people don't do upside-down deboning. So, literally, you start, the back is up, the chicken is on its breast, and you cut through the fat on the back, and you work your knife around the, the meat, between the meat and the bone, and that thigh bone is going to be kind of a bit of a challenge, but it's not terrible. Really, the biggest challenge is getting up into the wishbone and winglet areas where the um, humerus connects in the little shoulder joint to the, to the frame of the carcass. That's a bit of a challenge. It's not impossible, but it can be done. And then, so now you've got the, the carcass removed. You uh, continue separating the leg quarters from the rest of the skin separate the leg from the thigh and if you now you'll have to trust me because i'm pretty sure you don't have a chicken leg quarter in front of you but the next time you do put the skin side down and look at the meat and at the at that joint you'll see a a thin slightly yellowish line of fat and those fat kind of going everywhere. So what am I talking about? Well, it's going, it's actually covering the joint between the thigh and the leg. And so you can sort of start to rely on that little line of fat as the place to cut the thigh from the leg. And in this recipe, since we've deboned everything else, we're going to take the thigh bone out also. Chicken leg bone can stay in. And later on, in another episode, we're going to talk about uh, doing something with that leg quarters still attached, boning the entire thing out, leaving just a little knuckle at the very end of the leg, and then doing something, uh, well, complicated, but oh my gosh, it's just so fantastic.
Uh, that's a tease. I'm sorry. It wasn't very nice. So we have our boned chicken, deboned chicken. So cut the chicken breast through. Um, you may have to cut it a little bit on one side because what ends up happening is little bits of cartilage from the sternum will stick to the skin. So just cut on either side of that. That ends up going into the stock. Um, give it the dog maybe. Depending on how big this bird was, we're going to leave. We're not going to cut fillets like we did before, but maybe we're going to cut that chicken breast skin on, bone out in half. You could either, my preference, what I would do is cut it lengthwise from the shoulder down to the tip so that the two pieces have some uniformity in size. Even though one's fat, one's thin, you could also cut the cut them so there's a thin piece and a fat piece. That actually probably makes more sense. But depending on the size of what, depending on the size of your pan, depending on how many people you're feeding, and depending on how big that bird really was, you may not need to cut it at all. Uh, in this particular case, the winglets are removed. Um, you can. Cut that little that little bitty tip off. Um, also give that to the dog. They like that. And then either leave the wings whole or cut those in half. Season this with salt and pepper. Uh, Scoffing's phrase is, color them quickly on all sides. Well, what that means is in a really hot pan, put them into the fat. Now, there's... There's a, there's a moment of possible panic with when when, th when things happen. So you have a wet-ish thing, which is chicken, going into a pan that is not wet at all, very hot. And wet and hot, wet and oily hot, they aren't good friends. They get mad at each other fast. And so s spitting fat burns. It doesn't tickle. And it can, you know, it gets in your hands. Okay, well, then you can probably sort of deal with that. If it splashes up towards your neck and your face and any glasses, it gets kind of scary because it hurts. So I understand that part. When he's saying color it quickly, what he means is leave it in there long enough so that the skin will release from the pan. Um, this is based on the assumption that you aren't using Teflon pans or nonstick pans, whatever is in those things these days. And then turn it over and let it sear. And, and that's what's happening. It's searing. We know it's not waterproof, but it is developing flavor. Let it sear long enough that it does release again from the pan. Now, when you turn a meat over onto a spot that has, that has a glaze on it already, there's sometimes a tendency for in those spots the meat to stick. And that can become a really big frustration for any cooks. And so the way around that problem is knowing how to solve it. There isn't a way around. It's you have your hot pan, you've turned your chicken over, you have a nice color on the on now on the top side. On the bottom side, it's sticking a little bit. Well, take your... Um, like a tablespoon or a service spoon. Um, if you have a Paltex or a metal spatula that will fit in there, sort of 
push the chicken off the off the pan, off the sticking spot, that's a fine thing to do. Use that spoon or your um, forceps or your kitchen fork, lift it out and tongs if you have to. Put them on, put them on a pan, then you deglaze. In this particular case, though, I've gone ahead of myself. What we're going to do, we've we've what was the, uh, colored them well, turned them over, and we'll put a lid on this pan. If you don't have a lid, a piece of aluminum, measure ahead of time, a piece of aluminum foil that you can crimp around the edges, then put that into an oven. Now, he says a fairly hot oven. Well, what, we're back to this, what does that mean? Restaurants, ovens, <laughs> they have a thermometer, but <laughs> they have a thermostat, and, but most restaurants, it's either on or off. 500 degrees is the maximum, and nearly every time, that's what they're at. At home, 500 is probably hotter than, you, than you'd be comfortable with. It's hotter than I'm comfortable with. Uh, 450 is as high as I'll go here, and that's perfectly fine at home. So in this case, we've got chicken breasts, winglet pieces, thigh and leg pieces in this pan, depending on how big your pan is. It's covered, it's in the oven. Now you kind of have to watch this, because now that the thigh has been deboned, it's going to cook much faster. The chicken breast is going to cook faster, but again, we have this thin part and thick part, so you have to watch these things and keep an eye on when these things are done, and when they're done, take them out and let them sit somewhere warm, covered is fine, until the rest of the chicken is done and it all comes up and sits waiting for you to do the next steps. And the next steps are pour off, no, make sure you have a hot pad, pour off that extra oil. If it isn't too brown, save it for eggs for the next morning. Then deglaze all that lovely, fabulous brown bits off the bottom of the pan. You just set it by about half, then add your whatever the sauce is going to be uh, to into the pan. Add that heated chicken and simmer everybody together. And you can add that butter again. You could add a little bit of cream, something to get a little bit of fat. Check the seasoning. And now here we have a nicely sautéed chicken in the classical French style. And do notice that we worked really, really hard to make crispy skin only to have it turn soggy by putting into a sauce. It's kind of a weird thing. Here's the weirder thing. Scoffee mentions a procedure for a white saute, which keeps the chicken um, white. And his um, he writes, quote, stiffened in hot butter without coloring them, end quote then finished in the oven as for the brown sautés. So since it's got a lid on it, it seems, now I've never done, it seems unlikely to me that the skin is going to do very much more in that oven pan covered with foil or a lid. Now, it's probably going to get something of a glaze on the bottom, which then we would use a white wine or white stock to deglaze, which is going to turn a little bit of a color. I've never done this. This has never been something, the American palate doesn't want this. 
flaccid chicken skin doesn't seem appealing to me, and no one has ever asked me to make <laughs> limp skin on their chicken. I don't think Americans have a palate for that. I don't know that the French do, but I'm extrapolating from context. Now, in the rest of this chapter, there is turkey and duck to cover, which should be fairly quick. Uh, there is, so the procedure I teased you with for that leg quarter is also something we can do with the second part of the turkey winglet. And it doesn't really seem to make sense to talk, call a turkey winglet, a winglet, the thing's massive. So the turkey drummy is one thing, but that second one, there's something fun we can try, and I have never done this, so I'm going to, I'm going to try and do this, because this, I'm, I'm intrigued, and this, this could be interesting. So the, the, the tease is that, uh, and the recipe, the procedure is called a force-beat mousseline. Now, that doesn't sound particularly appetizing. It is, however, a very versatile and useful procedure, especially with holidays coming and hors d'oeuvre needs probably need to be met. And this is one way that lots of versatility can come from just one thing. All right, folks, that's going to do it for now on Chapter 8. A brief follow-up to magnesium. I forgot to mention chelated as something to look for on your label for magnesium. Now, chelation means that would for magnesium, it works for anything, but chelation, yeah. chelation means the magnesium binds or has been bound, binded, bound to an, with an amino acid. It's a lot of uncertainty in that sentence. Meriwether, our foraging friend and biochemist, told me, quote, chelation is the key to 99% of enzymatic active sites. It's what give enzymes their ability to do their job, end quote. So, that's kind of a big deal. It's a quick out today. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.